MSW Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now, let's get to the episode. This week, the Trump administration struggled to respond to the Supreme Court's ruling that blocked the addition of a citizenship question to the census. Initially, the Trump administration announced that the census would go forward without the controversial question because they didn't have enough time to continue fighting the issue in courts without delaying the census. But after a series of tweets by Trump, the administration made a series of statements to a federal judge that suggested the administration doesn't know what it'll do next, but is considering how it can add the citizenship question back to the census anyway. Can the administration really add the citizenship question back to the census? And would an executive order by Trump change anything? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say, I would never have guessed uh, a year or two ago that a question on the census would become the hottest and most important news and really one of the most contentious political issues uh, right now uh, between the two parties. You know, I was uh, fascinated by this from the very beginning, the way people reacted, because I think that we don't necessarily think about the census that often. Obviously, it's every 10 years. And I didn't realize that the census goes back all the way to 1790. Yeah. Oh, it's in the Constitution. Yeah. So counting people is, in fact, you know, spelled out in the Constitution as a grant of authority. One thing that's interesting is it's actually part of Article One, which is the section on Congress's powers, not Article Two, which is the section um, that's the presidential powers. It's actually a power that's given to Congress. And then I think that that issue, I think, will come into play um, during this uh, the court fight. And now I I wonder, uh, has has this ever been attempted before where an administration comes in and and wants this to be a part of the census? You know, it's funny because even though this particular question has been on the, the census at times, what I think is interesting here is there's a politicization politicization of the census where there's an addition of a question for for reasons that appear, I would say, dubious at best. Uh, the Supreme Court said as much, and I know we'll get more into that later. But I think what's worrying people here is there has clearly been an effort by Republicans to discourage certain groups from voting and Really, um, the stakes here are that, you know, it appears from some of the uh, correspondence that has been leaked that this question was added for the purpose of potentially discouraging certain voters uh, or excuse me, certain people from answering the census. And how would that matter? Well, let's just say that certain uh, minority groups were less likely to respond to the census. What it would mean is that their areas of the country would be undercounted. They would have fewer representatives in the House of Representatives because the census determines how many uh, House of Representatives seats you have in Congress. So potentially um, it could skew our Congress for the next 10 years in a way that was beneficial to the Republican Party. Well, and that's the thing is that you, you know, not only do you uh, disproportionately then affect people who are not counted in the census and who are, again, already afraid. There are people who are afraid to answer some of these questions, even people who've been here for a long time. I, my mom jokingly mentioned, you know, she came upstairs. My, we live in a two flat with my mom. And uh, she was, like, was asking, you know, what am I supposed to answer on this? Is there anything that – because there's a lot of fear and confusion over some of the early paperwork that's been sent out. Did you know that there are things that have been sent out already? 
Well, tell me about that. Yeah, she. It's just a. It seems like almost like a pre questionnaire, and then you wonder, well, where did mm. this come from? You know, I think that people also are going to start to wonder, what is the goal of this? You know, the sort of questioning. Well, I, one thing I'll tell you, I'll reveal something I I don't think I've ever talked about before. But I used to be a census enumerator when I was a kid. They have things that are called what? they have things that are called special censuses that they have, where a, a municipality, for example, can. Um, request that there's a census done in between the 10-year period because let's uh, say they had a population boom or some other change that affected their population. If they pay for it, the the bureau, the Census Bureau will come and do a special census and update the numbers for that particular municipality. So I had, uh, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I had a lot of jobs because we frankly were struggling to make ends meet at times. And one of them was a census enumerator. I would uh, I was, uh, you know, sworn oath or whatever, and then you got a you got a book and you had a questionnaire and you had to go house to house to house and ask people a lot of questions about who was in the house and so you can get an accurate count. And one of the issues always when you're going to people's homes is they assume you're uh, selling them something. You have some sort of ulterior motive when, of course, you know, I was a federal employee and I was doing our job under, you know, the, our constitutionally, as you point out, I've had a constitutionally mandated job. Um, and I think they are uh, experimenting, I think, with some online versions and things to try to update the census for the next century. Because, you know, I think some of the questions that are on the census at times can you know, wor- you know, worry people. They don't like to give out their personal information. So it's, it is a sensitive subject. And what kind of reactions would you get from folks besides once they realize you weren't selling them something? Were they cynical about the job you were doing? Some people, I had a little badge, which did not look like much. I mean, it's like a piece of paper, if I recall correctly, that did not look like much. So that there's some of them were skeptical of the whole thing, which under- I can understand. Then there were they would always there were certain people that would only answer certain questions. The the questions that I absolutely needed to answer were like how many people were in the house, okay? But there would be all these supplemental questions. They'd say, you know, um, what is the you know ethnic origin of people or things like that because they're counting to see you know how what percentage of the community is African American or Native American or whatever. And some people just refused to answer anything other than how many people were there. And usually my line at the time, if I recall correctly, was um, if you don't answer this question of how many people are here, you're going to keep getting stuff from the census uh, anyway. And people did receive mailers in advance to notify them that the census was coming so that they would answer the door. And that may have been – I don't know if that may have been what you, what yeah, you my mom talked is, about. Yeah, worried about. Well, it's a very big thing. It has it's very significant consequences. It's one of these things that – most of us spend very little time thinking about, but clearly some people in the Trump administration have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I think one thing that has come out here is that there there clearly were very dubious reasoning. There's a dubious reasoning behind um, the census. We had a Supreme Court ruling. I know a lot of listeners are wondering, why do we? Why is there this question about a census, uh, about the census uh, question going forward when the Supreme Court's already ruled on it? And as we'll learn a little bit later, the the ruling by the Supreme Court left the door open for an additional, uh, you know, for additional litigation over this question. A better argument, basically. A better reasoning that could okay. be given. Um, the problem was that the sen- the timing of the census is set in the Constitution, and it's also set in by statute. So you can't delay the census without violating the Constitution, a point I, I made, I think, on Twitter a number of times. And so the, the Trump administration was in this very difficult situation. They had told the Supreme Court that they um, needed a quick decision because they had to start printing the census and they had to go forward with that. And now um, they would love to delay things, I suppose. But, you know, that's not only contrary to the Constitution and to federal law, but it's also kind of the opposite of what they had been telling the courts. So courts are willing to allow um, governments to come up with reasons that sound okay on their face, but are probably not the only reason they're doing things. But here they did a very ham-handed job of even doing that. Uh, which, you know, for example, in the travel ban, the, the eventually the government got to a point where they had come up with some reasons that if you just took them on their face sort of 
uh, you know, according to five votes in the Supreme Court, were good enough to hold muster. Here, they just hadn't even accomplished that. Um, And yet they just have run out of time. So I don't I don't know if there are any options for the Trump administration. Certainly our guests will have a a better perspective on that than I do. But um, it's amazing to me how the Trump administration has got itself into this position because they could with just sheer competence. They could have gotten themselves, um, they certainly could have gotten this question on the census if they wanted to. Well, which makes it seem all the more as though it's just a rallying point to prove to the people, to his base, that, you know, he's he's doing what they sent them there for. Yeah, I do. I will say this. I think that one thing that the Trump administration is trying to accomplish right now is they're trying to make sure that their base knows that if the, that this question is not... Um, on the it won't be on the questionnaire because of the Supreme Court, not because of any lack of will by the Trump administration. He wants to sort of run against the courts. I, one thing I will say, I, I have get for some reason my email has gotten put on a bunch of mailing lists, including some right wing mailing lists. So I've got I get things from the Tea Party and all sorts of right wing politicians, um, and there have there have started the emails have started coming recently about. Um, how we need term limits for the Supreme Court and going after John Roberts and going really? after the Supreme Court, which I find interesting. It may be a rare moment of ref- right-left agreement because from fo- to the folks on the left, there's a conservative majority in the court, and they would love to term limit those folks out of there. It would require a constitutional amendment, uh, which is nearly impossible to accomplish, I would imagine. Uh, to, 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 to make that happen. But it gives you a sense of where the rhetoric uh, on the Trump side and where it's going at this point. They're very upset. Yeah, even if even though he's loaded it with, you know, those he thought would, uh, you know, reflect his wishes, it's still not getting it done for him. Well, it's interesting. You know, we the right towards the end of the Supreme Court's term, there were two big decisions. One was a huge decision that went the way of the Trump administration, a 5-4 decision that said that the Supreme Court just said, well, this the political gerrymandering is a quote, political question, unquote, that the courts are not going to get involved in, which courts are very reluctant to wade into political issues. But this was an issue that had really gotten to the point where you couldn't trust the government to ever get involved because it was essentially a system by which um, politicians were getting themselves, keeping themselves in office. Very big decision that favored the Trump administration. Here, by a 5-4 vote, Chief Justice Roberts went the other way. Um, and essentially, it was it was a vote that, for all practical purposes, would would get the citizenship question removed, but not, um, not uh, you know, it wasn't ruling definitively on that issue. And nonetheless, that that alone has drawn the ire of a lot of folks on the right. Yeah. So now let's bring in Daniel Jacobson. Uh, he is a lawyer who is representing uh, some immigrant rights organizations in the lawsuit in New York that is uh, against the Trump administration seeking to block the citizenship question from the census. Uh, He also was an associate White House counsel uh, during the Obama administration. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk for a minute. I want to give some background to people. Can you explain why it is that this citizenship question matters, uh, the the inclusion of it on the census? Sure. Um, It it has enormous consequences, both uh, short-term, medium-term, and long-term. The short-term consequences is that all of the available scientific evidence shows, including, mind you, from the Census Bureau itself, Who's reached this conclusion that including this question on the on the census will lead to a massive undercount um, in in terms of people not responding to the census, particularly from uh, you know Latino and other immigrant communities, um, and the undercount on the census uh, has sort of direct consequences both on political power. Um, because the amount of people who respond to the census is the basis for apportioning how many congressional districts every state gets. Um, and so there's scientific evidence, again, pretty much undisputed, that uh, these, this undercount will result in fewer congressional seats for states like New York and California and many other states, um, which then causes, would cause those states to get less electoral college votes. 
Um, and then uh, on top of that, um, federal funding is directly tied to the census population counts. And so an undercount of the census would cause states like, again, New York, California, many other states to receive less federal funding than they should be receiving. Um, the longer term consequences of, of this, which have really come clear uh, in the last month or so, and I'm happy to get into this later, um, but have become clear, including from files that we unearthed from a deceased uh, GOP mapmaker, is that they want to use this citizenship data to totally dramatically change the way that redistricting is done within states, to do it in a way that um, would exclude non-citizens. And what this GOP mapmaker concluded, um, and again, I can get into more detail on this later, is that doing this, adding the citizenship question to enable this, would be, quote, advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. So it's becoming more and more clear that that's the real end game goal here for the for the Trump administration. Wow, <laughs> that's yes. a, the, I'm writing all this down because I'm like, wait, this, well, okay, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's that's really, really, really significant. It's interesting because it's an issue that I don't think is on the lips of a lot of uh, our listeners. It's not something that people were focused on, but it's extremely important. And um, I want to also just uh, before we get into all of this, because there's a lot to unpack here. I also just from way of background, this lawsuit that we're talking about, uh, I think people have heard a little bit about it on the news. You know, there's a judge that has been having hearings and so forth. Can you just tell us what this lawsuit is about and, you know, and, and who you represent and what's, what's going on with that? Sure. So there's actually three separate lawsuits. Um, there's the lawsuit that I'm working on in New York. Um, there's a lawsuit in Maryland, and there's a lawsuit in California. The um, Our lawsuit in New York, which was filed um, a little bit over a year ago, there's two different pl- groups of plaintiffs there. There's the um, New York Attorney General's office and some other state attorney general's office who sued because their states are going to be harmed by this for the reasons I just said. And then my firm represents a group of um, individuals and immigration rights organizations that um, their communities, their members will suffer harm from this. And so we filed a lawsuit about a year ago claiming that the decision to add a citizenship question on the census um, violated what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, um, the APA as it's known, which says that when agencies do something, they have to have legitimate reasons for doing it. Uh, it's a sort of way of characterizing it. Um, that was our, our main claim in the case. Our case is the one that went to trial first and then went up to the Supreme Court um, and so that's the case that the Supreme Court uh, ruled on a couple of weeks ago, um, in which they said that the, the, the government, the Trump administration's reason for adding this question was totally manufactured and, and illegitimate. Yeah, I have to say it was it was a surprising ruling um, for to me as a lawyer, because often courts like to defer to the federal government's uh, stated reasons for doing things. Uh, particularly um, when, you know, it's an area where they have some discretion in whether to do so. So it was very interesting. The language that Chief Justice Roberts used in that opinion, while to the average person sounded very lawyerly, to me sounded uh, very pointed. In other words, it was for him. It's sort of like when Robert Mueller wrote letters and people are like, wow, that's just, you know, that that doesn't sound very tough. But for Robert Mueller, right. it was a very strongly worded letter. To me, for Chief Justice Roberts, uh, that was a pretty strongly worded opinion about uh, the reasoning uh, behind the inclusion of that question. I'm curious what your views are on the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, I, I think you saw that tension you just described uh, in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion between sort of the normal deference that's afforded, but then this extraordinary set of circumstances here. And what Chief Justice Roberts said, which which absolutely just is the law and has to be the case, is that when the government does something, it has to tell us, it has to act reasonably and it has to tell us why it's doing what it's doing. You know, we might normally give a lot of deference to those reasons, but it can't just lie about what it's doing, what it's doing. And what Chief Justice Roberts said, and I think that sort of captured it well, is the courts can't be required to just stick their heads in the sand. Those were lines, words that he used about, you know, when it, when all available evidence shows that the reasons the government gave for what they're doing are, are false, are made up. And here, you know, there, I don't think there's enough sand out there in the world that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to cover up sort of the, uh, you know, to make us close our eyes to what's really going on here. And so that's, you know, that's what the, the court held and ruled. 
And so now, you know, I, I should say, not to get ahead of uh, the conversation here, you know, it, it's ridiculous that now after saying that, the Trump administration is openly saying, well, we're going to just try to come up with a new made up reason, you know, on the fly here. Um, sort of goes directly to what Chief Justice Roberts was saying is you, you can't do that. You can't just make something up, which is what they're clearly doing here. Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting to me. One thing that is important to note, uh, first of all, you know, one thing that I, is an interesting question is when is the court um, willing to accept what I'll call what we, I t- you just called a moment ago made up reasons for things? Uh, and when is it not? And uh, one thing I would say here for myself as an outside person looking in who's not like like you involved in the in the lawsuit um, it seems to me that you that when the government does a competent job of coming up with a, its made up reason, the Supreme <laughs> Court's willing to accept it. Uh, here, I think the, the Trump administration just did such a bad job of wallpapering over the real reasons why it was doing this um, that the, the, even you know Chief Just, Justice Roberts just with a straight face couldn't accept it. And I think one lesson to be learned here is that. The only reason that a lawsuit like this is able to been, been successful in the Supreme Court and this question very well may not be on it, although we'll talk more about that later, is really just because of mistakes that were made by the Trump administration. I'm curious what you're, if you would agree with that or not. Yeah, I mean, given given the ongoing litigation, I don't want to speculate sure. too much um, on that. <laughs> so, sure. I, you know, you, we'll never know sort of how things would have turned out if they hadn't, um, you know come up with this obviously cooked up reason. I mean, I think it's important to say that, that, you know, for listeners out there who haven't been following this closely, the reason that the Trump administration gave and insisted over and over again, Secretary Wilbur Ross said this in sworn congressional testimony, and they said it in court, the reason they wanted to add this question purportedly was to enforce the Voting Rights Act, because they said they cared so much about uh, voting rights for Latino communities. I mean, Anyone who hears that with a straight face, I mean, everyone just starts laughing immediately that this administration cares about that. And then, you know, the evidence we unearthed in our case shows that that reason was completely manufactured, that uh, Wilbur Ross decided he wanted to do this and then started shopping around the federal government saying, can someone please come up with a reason? Give me some justification I can cite for this. And this is the best they came up with. Yeah, it's really something that, that that's what they came up with. And so one thing that is important, I think, let's let's get 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 back to sort of uh, explaining this for folks, is why the reasoning behind this decision matters. And and here's in here's how I would explain it as a starting point for people, and then I and I then you can get into the legal weeds on it a little bit more. Is at a sometimes you can do things that on their face are lawful, but if you do it for the wrong reasons, that can be problematic. So in other words. In and of itself, there, there's nothing wrong with having a citizenship on the question of the census in and of itself, perhaps. But if, for example, you're doing it in order to um, affect a certain minority group on the basis of race or national origin or something like that, obviously, then you are, you know, they are not being afforded equal protection under the laws, or some, for example. Or if you're doing it for a reason that, um, and as you point out under the Administrative Procedures Act, if you're doing it for a reason that is different than what you're telling the public, uh, that can be uh, also potentially unlawful. Uh, can you explain that a little bit further for us, why that matters so much? Sure, sure. And and for this, I think I'll just point to Chief Justice Roberts's opinion from a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, you know, the way our federal government, um, the executive branch operates is, is that, you know, agencies such, such as the Department of Commerce can take actions. They announce they want to take an action. And they need to state the reasons for the action they're taking in order for courts and the public to be able to comment on them, you know, the actions they want to take and assess whether it's a reasonable course of action or not. Um, And so what Chief Justice Roberts said is, you know, in order to quote, I'm just reading from his opinion, ensure that agencies offer just uh, ensure, I'm sorry, that agencies reasons can be, quote, scrutinized by courts and the interested public. Agencies have to offer genuine reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. Sort of the public, you know, scrutiny and scrutiny by the courts would be meaningless if all it meant is that agencies could sort of figure out what's what's the best fake reason we can give, right? Um, let's let's run an interagency process and come up what's the best lie we can give for what we're doing. It, it would sort of subvert the entire point of having court review of agency actions and 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 frankly for the public to know why our government is doing what it's doing. 
You know, if the, if, if the Trump administration had just said whatever were the real reasons that they wanted to add the questions, if they had just said that up front, then it would have allowed the courts and the public to assess that. But that's not what they did. One of the listeners uh, asks, is there a clear constitutional or statutory law that prohibits this addition to the census? Um, and, and because, you know, we've done some of the reading. I know a lot of people are, have been curious about that. So that, you know, does, decades ago, there was such a question that had been included and was removed by court order. So what was the basis? And are, are there any precedents that suggest a likely outcome? We have pretty smart listeners. I know. So. I'm like, it's like tiered. I wasn't sure if I should stagger the question. But I'm like, you know what? Sure. I'll get it all out there. <laughs> do, you, do you have any answer to that one? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, the, the, the law that was the, that was the basis for the Supreme Court blocking this was the, the Administrative Procedure Act, which I cited, which is just the general law that applies to every agency in the executive branch, which, like I said, uh, says that agencies have to tell the real reasons for what they're doing, and, and those reasons can't be what's called arbitrary and capricious. Um, so that's, you know, it doesn't matter what an agency is doing. Anytime it wants to take any sort of official action, it has to offer legitimate explanations that pass mustard. Um, you know, there are constitutional provisions, obviously, that relate to the counting of the census and that says that every single person needs to be counted, not citizens. But the specific law that, you know, blocked this was the Administrative Procedure Act. Yeah. The, the part of the reason that's important, just so everyone understands, is, you know, a minute ago I was half jokingly talking about how courts will take um, a gov- the federal government's, uh, view, you know, positions on things or, excuse me, stated reasons for doing things, uh, at, you know, at face value. And the reason, you know, they're deferential is as long as a government has a reason for doing things, the courts aren't there to govern. They're there to, um, you know, uh, prevent violations of law. But when they're when, when they aren't when they're giving reasons that are unrelated to the real reason they're doing things, then it prevents courts from actually doing that review. Um, one thing that I I think is worth talking about is um, is a, kind of as a transition now is the timing of all of this, because. As I've noted publicly a number of times, the timing for the census is written into the United States Constitution. There's a term of 10 years, um, and it, the Constitution makes clear that the census has to occur every 10 years. And there's a statute, a federal law, that mm-hmm. says that the census will be conducted on April 1st. I think it's April 1st uh, or, or April 20. Yeah, of every of every 10-year uh, cycle. And so delaying the census uh, would appear to me to be unconstitutional. I'm curious what what impact that appears to me. It's had a very significant that deadline has had a very significant impact on your litigation. Yeah, it, it has an enormous. Uh, so I will say you're absolutely right. The It would be both unconstitutional and it would violate the statute to um to delay the census, you know, uh, for lawyers out there, you know, in law school, when we do examples of like statutory interpretation, when you try to come up with like an interp- a, a hypothetical statute that's not ambiguous, you, you give an example like this statute where it says it has to be on April 1st, right? There's no like ambiguity. There's no wiggle room. You couldn't come up with a less uh, um, unambiguous statute. So, or more, I might've said that the wrong way, more <laughs> ambiguous statute. So, um, so what I'll say, though, is, um, you know, the timing, though, played a central role in this case. Um, and it's actually the basis for a motion that we filed yesterday with the district court. Um, do you want me to get into that now? Yeah, or, sure. Or I'm, happy to, I'm happy to. Sure. sure. So the government represented, the federal government represented at the very start of this case and over and over and over again, 20 different times, that the deadline to finalize the census was the end of June uh, 2019, i.e. a week or so ago, that they needed this case to be over and done with by then, because in order to get everything in shape and to print all the forms in time um, to meet that April 1st deadline we were just talking about, this everything needed to be set and done by the end of June, because it takes a really, really long time to print, you know, to, to set and print, you know, 350 million forms or however many it is. Um, and so that representation by the government as to a June 30th deadline was accepted by the courts and it drove the whole case. We went on this crazy expedited timeline in the district court, which held an expedited trial, expedited discovery um, based on that representation. But then beyond that, the solicitor general's office told the United States Supreme Court at least 10 different times that June 30th was the deadline and that the case had to be done. And they, the, the Supreme Court relied on that. So the solicitor general's office 
ask the Supreme Court to do something that's extraordinarily rare, which is to skip over the intermediate court of appeals, in our case, the Second Circuit, and grant what's called cert before judgment, um, which is just sort of a technical term for skipping over the court of appeals. (laughs) And they said, the reason you need to skip over the court of appeals and take an extraordinary step is because otherwise we need a final Supreme Court resolution of this by June 30th, because that's the hard and fast deadline. And the Supreme Court agreed, and it granted cert before judgment based on that representation. And then they said it 10 more times. They said, um, in the middle of our briefing, this is another extremely rare thing, they said, because there was a different case in California that addressed a different issue um, that we didn't appeal about, like sort of a constitutional question. They said, Supreme Court, can you add that to the briefing in this New York case, even though it wasn't one of the issues that the New York plaintiffs appealed, because we just need to resolve all these issues by June 30th. And the Supreme Court said, okay, based on your representation that June 30th is the deadline, we'll add that constitutional issue to the case, and they added it. We had to brief it on an expedited schedule, and the Supreme Court actually ruled against us on that constitutional issue. Um, They said it as recently as two days before the Supreme Court issued its decision. The Solicitor General wrote in a brief to the United States Supreme Court that June 30th was the hard and fast deadline. For them to now come back, which they appear to be doing, and say that that was just made up and they actually have more time is frankly just, it's astonishing. Um, It's conduct that uh, if any ordinary litigant did would get them sanctioned. And this is not any ordinary litigant. It's, you know, the Department of Justice, which is supposed to be held to the highest standard. Um, So it's, you know, I'm getting uh, going on a rant here because just, you know, as Renato, I'm sure you know, as a litigant, you know, you, you really can't be like making representations to the court and then coming back later and saying, oh, just kidding, especially when the court relied on those representations. Yeah, let me just I'll, let me put that into some context for folks. So you're absolutely right. You know, you're saying as a litigant. So, you know, part of what I do, uh, my main job, as many of you know, uh, is I represent people in court. Um, and uh, I used to obviously represent the United States in court for many years as a federal prosecutor. And when you do that, um, all lawyers have an ethical duty of candor to the court. You're supposed to be honest with the judge. And um, that's just a baseline. And if you lose that credibility with a judge uh, or with judges in general, because they tend to talk to one another and your word gets around, uh, you're you're totally screwed as a lawyer. And sometimes if you are dishonest and a court believes there's some deliberate dishonesty, as you mentioned, you can even be sanctioned by a court where, and I've seen it, where where lawyers have to pay fines or do something else or their client loses out because the misrepresentation was done in league with their client, something like that. Um, with you know, When I worked at the United States Department of Justice, what I was always told is that a Justice Department lawyer was at, held to a higher standard uh, than a typical lawyer and that here, you know, you were not supposed to be winning a case. It was not about there's this famous saying in the rotunda of the United States Justice Department in D.C. that the United States wins its point when justice has done its people in the courts. In other words, winning a point in a particular lawsuit is not what it's about when you're a Justice Department lawyer. You're about doing the right thing. Um, and so um, dishonesty in any way, or even being slightly inaccurate. I mean, I had times where I was up uh, when I was in the Justice Department. I'd be, uh, I would be up against the other side, and they'd say, "Well, you know, the the government said that that my client created a false document. In fact, he just caused somebody else to create the false document." Or you know, these sort of like fine distinctions, and they would say, "Well, that's I mis- made a misrepresentation to the court." Here, uh, this is just a sort of ideal, you know, would be, uh, 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 you know, complete falsehood. Now, what, may, what and one thing that's interesting is, is for those of you who, uh, listeners who have not been listening to this, there was um, uh, one of the judges in one of these cases literally haul, like hauled the Justice Department into court. The initial uh, status conference was over the phone. And the judge is trying to find out what happened. And it was clear that the Justice Department lawyers were trying to tell the judge, we didn't lie to you. We didn't lie to the court. We just don't know what the heck is going on either. And I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us a little bit about that. So this is like a different set of, of, I'll try to choose my word carefully, uh, misrepresentations, shall we say, Um, which, you know, in in this particular case, I, I don't 
think the specific Justice Department lawyer was in on it. Um, it sounded like he was truly just in the dark. But what, what's remarkable is um, after the Supreme Court decision, uh, you know, there was this issue about, in this Maryland case where the judge decided to reopen the case because of um, these documents that we unearthed, and, and I can talk about that more too, um, that show sort of a potential or what we believe an actual discriminatory purpose, uh, racially discriminatory purpose behind the census question. And so the judge in that Maryland case um, reopened uh, a challenge under the Equal Protection Clause, and that happened before the Supreme Court decision. The judge said, this new evidence is really serious. I'm going to reopen the case. The judge had initially denied the Equal Protection Claim. And so after the Supreme Court decision, the judge gave the, the Maryland uh, the, the government a deadline saying, what's going on? Are you going to give up on this, or do we need to move forward? And the United States Department of Justice told the judge in a status conference, um, I think this was on Tuesday, we're done. We've made the decision that we're not going to pursue the citizenship question any further. Um, we're going to print the forms without the question, and this case is done. They then sent us, the plaintiff's lawyers in the New York case, an email saying the exact same thing. Uh, and, and from what I'm told, I wasn't on the conference when the judge asked them, is this a final decision, and the Maryland judge? Or, you, know, you promise you're not going to go back and try to you know, get it back on. They said, yep, it's a final decision. It's done once and for all. That was on Tuesday. Wednesday at around noon, President Trump tweets that this is, quote, fake news, apparently referring to his own Justice Department, and then he is going to try to move forward. Um, and so they then had to go back, hat in hand, with a judge called an emergency hearing later that day. And that, that's the um, exchange that went around where the lawyer said, you know, I told you what I told you yesterday was the truth based on what I knew at the time. And I'm sort of learning about this for the first time from the president's tweets. And I don't know what's going on. And now they've clarified in subsequent filings in our New York case and in the Maryland case. And in fact, they're reneging on what they told the federal court. They're not, it's not over and done. And they're going to try to find a way to push forward to add the question back to the census. So it's, it's a second set of representations where they're now going back on what they told the court. Yeah, I, that I think is absolutely amazing. And I and I think I, I really think I actually felt a little bit bad for that Justice Department lawyer. Right. Because, right, there had been an announcement. Secretary Ross, uh, the Secretary of Commerce, came out and said that there wasn't going to be that question. That was the headline everywhere. It was based on official news reporting. And then when Trump made that tweet. I think I replied to it and I said, well, he you're calling your own administration fake news. I don't know. I mean, it didn't make any sense. And and literally this Justice Department lawyer is doing what many of us are trying to do, which is figure out what the hell is going on when Trump tweets. Um, and for that reason, I wonder, you know, I, I think the go the federal government itself may pay a price for this. Um, these, you know, misrepresentations. But I don't think any individual lawyer will, because I think every judge knows that it's not the fault of any of these individual lawyers who are just trying to do their job. And we essentially have government by tweet. That'd be my prediction on that. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, but one, so let's um, let's talk before before we get to more listener questions. Let me just ask you for in the short term. What does all of this mean for going forward? In other words, it seems to me that the ruling by Chief Justice Roberts on its face did not foreclose the administration coming back to them. But as a practical matter, it did. I thought it was actually a fairly clever position for him to take at the time, opinion at the time, because it essentially didn't foreclose the issue, but it did because of the timing is there some way what, what what kind of plan are you are there has there been any sort of um rumors about what or understand you have any understanding of what the plan could be from the Trump administration cuz right now honestly i i can't make heads or tails of what their position is yeah i mean I, all i know is that you know is what i you i know as much as you do from reading tweets right um and I should say, you know, we've been talking for about 25 minutes now. It's possible that they've manufactured a new pretext in the 25 minutes since we started talking. Um, or maybe they've changed the pretext several times over that 25 minutes. Who knows? Um, there's been talk of issuing an executive order where, bizarrely, it seems like um, a guy named Michael Ludig, who's a former federal judge and is now a senior executive Boeing, is pushing this and announcing this, which 
raises all sorts of questions as to why he's involved. Um, but <laughs> putting that aside, um, you know, why, you know, what if they're going to issue an executive order, they've talked about going back to the Supreme Court and seeking some sort of clarification. We just, we just, you know, don't know. I will say, you know, because of this sort of chaos that they've instilled, that's why we filed a motion last night with our federal district court in New York, asking the court to um, what's called amend its judgment to basically put an end to all of this and say this this is over and done with. The continued uncertainty and chaos is actually causing real damage to people. It's causing more sort of fear within immigrant communities about what is going on, more confusion. And so we ask that the court amend its judgment to just make clear that once and for all, this question cannot be on the citizenship, uh, the citizenship question cannot be on the 2020 census. But do you see a situation in which the SCOTUS, you know, in any way could ignore the history of bad faith rationales if the if the administration comes back with something that's new and uh, quite obviously a lie? I mean, as a, I, I want to be careful as a litigant in an ongoing case. I, we we feel very confident in our position um, that you know, there, there, it's any like you just said, anything would be bad faith, and especially given the timing point. But you know, you never want to make guarantees in life, uh, especially as a lawyer. Especially yeah. these days. Yeah. And as a lawyer, he's he's doing the right thing. So we have to be more careful here because he's involved in an ongoing suit. I will just say from my perspective, I think w- there's two things that are working against this administration right now. And the most important one, I think, is time. We've already covered that issue beforehand. They simply don't have time to figure this out uh, and come up with something new going forward. Um, the, the, the time crunch is so great, and they've put themselves in a bit of a trick bag uh, by pushing and asking for such extraordinary relief um, this quickly from the courts in the first place. Secondly, one problem is they went so far down a different road uh, in terms of its stated reason that it's very hard to, to switch course. So in a litigation, when you take a certain position and you go down that road, it's very hard to switch gears and suddenly say you have a totally different view. Um, I, I will say that you know, it, it, this is a contrast, and one thing I want to help folks understand, and I can talk about this more, I think, freely than Dan can, is, you know, a lot of people thought that the travel ban, for example, was a, a example of a governmental action that was where the Supreme Court accepted the the government's views on things, even though it was it, it, there's a lot of serious questions about whether that that was the, that was the true view of why this was this ban was going into effect because of Trump's prior statements. But those statements were what they were, Trump's prior statements, and they had new bans and so forth and so on. Um, it's you know you could imagine with enough time the Trump administration coming up with a new question that that resolves uh, that that gets some of their their goals, their policy goals, but has a different reasoning, and they can kind of wipe the wash their hands like Pontius Pilate washed their hands of what happened with this. But they just simply do not have the the year. Uh, plus that might there are several months that they might need to do that in this context. So that would be sort of my way. I know we have had a lot of listeners asking at this these questions at this point. I know it's easier for me to answer certain of those questions. Um, but one question I think that you could answer, Dan, that I think is important that touches on what you um, were, um, you know, you alluded to a moment ago regarding uh, Judge Ludig and so forth. Well, now I, I understand he's general counsel of Boeing, but nonetheless, former Judge Ludig. Um, this idea of an executive order. Trump has mentioned an executive order multiple times uh, in recent days. From where I sit, I don't understand how an executive order changes anything. I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with anything. First of all, this is a you know this is an Article One. It's a congressional power, not a, a, a executive power. But all, aside from all of that, there was never any question that the administration had the the power to add this question to the census the question was simply on the its chosen reasons for its you know reasons for doing so so why would an executive order change anything i i think you say it as well i i have no idea um it shouldn't and it wouldn't because as you mentioned the the power to conduct the census and the responsibility to oversee the census is put in article 1 of the constitution which relates to congress's powers not article 2 of the constitution which is about the president's powers um congress acting under its article 1 authority has passed a statute in the census act that delegates some authority to the secretary of commerce to um administer the census um 
in the Secretary of Commerce's role as um, overseeing the Census Bureau. The Census Bureau is part of the Commerce Department. Um, but that authority, you know, Congress delegated it to the Secretary of Commerce, not to the president. And so an executive order, the most the president can do is issue an executive order that orders the Secretary of Commerce to add the question. But then the question becomes, why is the Secretary of Commerce adding the question? And if his answer is because the president ordered me to, then we get to look at what are the president's motivations and why are the president's, why does the president want to add the question? And I don't think that will end well for this administration if that becomes the inquiry. Yeah, it's interesting to me because in it, given a lot of uh, enough time, maybe it couldn't end any, any worse. I mean, this is a bad result for them in this litigation. So you could imagine you know, potentially if there's no sheets of paper, there's no emails or documents, maybe they would want it to go that way. But they just I don't see them having the time to change course. And I think to me, that clock is a significant part of what's going on here. What I might speculate, and I don't think it's I understand this isn't, you know, in your in your uh, something you can do in this stage is perhaps what this is about is potentially making it clear to his base that he wants there to be a question and it's the court's fault if it isn't maybe to make, you know, have some political statement that makes that very clear that he's doing everything he can to get it added. I don't, I I can't really make any sense of it otherwise, or potentially he's been told a lot. The president's been told a lot that executive orders are great and he can get a lot done with executive orders. And so he just thinks that that might um, get something to here. Maybe. Although, you know, I will say, and I don't want to go on too much about this, given the ongoing litigation is, you know, both the president and everyone who works for the president across the executive branch takes an oath uh, to uphold the law and to the Constitution and to the rule of law. They don't take an oath to the president's base and to do what's best for the president's base. And so everyone, you know, (laughs) everyone needs to make their own decision of whether they can discharge that oath faithfully, uh, given what we know. And so I, I personally just find that extremely troublesome. I don't think it's an adequate justification for the Justice Department to say, well, we're, we, we know this is illegal. We know it's not OK, but we're just doing it because the president told us to do it. You know, it's, it's an interesting point. It really harkens back to conversations that we've had a number of times in this podcast. We had somebody who quit the Justice Department uh, who we interviewed because she felt that she could not uh, discharge her oath faithfully. I think that, you know, it's a challenging thing. I, I served um, uh, when there was two presidents, a Republican and a Democrat. I served as a federal prosecutor in both. It was a non-political position. I was a lawyer. And I, I, can, I do feel for some of the lawyers in a situation where on its face saying, hey, you want a census question in and of its faith, in and of itself, that can be okay. I do think potentially the emails uh, or, or the that were uncovered, the more recent data, is very troubling, and uh, I would not feel comfortable defending the inclusion of a question that was motivated by racial animus or a desire to hurt a particular minority group. And I think that may be a good segue to get into that because I, I do want people to to hear about that because I think that that was an important discovery. Yeah, sure. So. Um... So me and a couple of colleagues of mine and I um, at Arnold and Porter, our law firm, are working both on the census case and on a totally separate lawsuit in North Carolina state court, a gerrymandering lawsuit that's challenging the North Carolina state legislative districts. Um, And so in the course of that lawsuit, which folks might have read about, we obtained via in discovery – the files, the hard drives of a late um, sort of the late GOP map making guru named Dr. Thomas Hoffler, who passed away uh, shortly before our lawsuit in file was filed in August 2018. Um, our lawsuit was filed a few months after that. And his daughter um, called up our client, said she was in possession of his materials, his files, his hard drives, offered to provide them. We issued a subpoena to the daughter, obtained them. And so we then, you know, came into possession of the files that belonged to um, Dr. Hoffler. Dr. Hoffler was um, the sort of chief Republican mapmaker um, going back decades, not just in North Carolina, but around the country. Um, really is, you know, was a brilliant guy who perfected the art of gerrymandering, I think is a fair thing to say. Um, and 
in those files, obviously, we were focusing on, you know, reviewing documents relevant to our North Carolina gerrymandering case, but we found a couple of files that showed that he had played a secret, previously unknown role in orchestrating the addition of the citizenship question, which is a pretty, you know, remarkable find. Um, and, and, you know, just sort of a coincidence that, you know, I happen to be working, and a couple of my colleagues, I happen to be working on both that case and the census case. Um, so sort of was able to put together the significance of those files. Um, they showed a couple of things. One, Dr. Hoffler wrote a study in 2015 in which he concluded um, that was, the study was about switching the way redistricting is done. So in, currently the way redistricting is done is that you use – all districts have to have the same population. So every congressional district has to have essentially the same population as every other congressional district in your state. So a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and more or less the same thing for state house districts, state senate districts, um, local state districts. They all have to have roughly equal population. Currently the way we measure that is just based on the total population of the state including citizens, non-citizens, children, people who can't vote, whatever, total population. Dr. Hoffler wrote a study, which has been a long-time GOP um, goal, of switching that to using only the citizen voting age population of the state for equal population purposes. Um, And that, you know, I don't want to get too far afield here from the census case, but it relates directly to that. What he concluded in that study as that the only way the Supreme Court will let us make this enormous switch in how we do redistricting is by adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census. He wrote that, you know, point blank for, for both technical reasons and legal reasons. Um, and the second thing he wrote is if we're able to add the citizenship question to the census to make the switch, it would have enormous, enormous structural consequences for political power within states in this country. It would shift power um, and I can get into the technical reasons why, but it would shift power from, uh, it would take power away from Latino communities in particular. He did a case study of Texas where he gave the specific communities, uh, Latino communities that would lose political power. And it would shift power to more rural, semi-rural communities. And what he wrote in his conclusions is that it would be majorly disadvantageous to Democratic voters and it would be, quote, advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic white people. Um, and so that was sort of the template, right? We need a citizenship question on the census to do that, to do this, to make the switch, which will have this enormous consequences. Not only that, we found a document in, within the Hoffler files from his hard drives that showed that he had actually ghostwritten an orig- a major part of an original draft of the Department of Justice's letter coming up um, that was, quote, you know, requesting the citizenship question on the census for purposes of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. So Dr. Hoffler ghost wrote um, sort of a part of this letter that set forth for the first time this VRA pretextual rationale. So the same guy, um, because apparently, you know, we we don't know all the details yet. We have a sanctions motion to get to the bottom of this because this is all obscured. But Apparently, the Department of Commerce, someone there, enlisted Dr. Hoffler to help them come up with this VRA rationale. And they did so, you know, they enlisted the same guy who had just concluded that adding the citizenship question would be terrible for Latino communities to come up with a pretext about why they purportedly needed this to help Latino communities in the Voting Rights Act. So as far as sort of smoking gun evidence goes, this was as smoking gun as it gets. And so we discovered that about, I don't know what it was, a month and a half ago, I think it was around Memorial Day, um, brought it to the district court's attention, brought it to the Supreme Court's attention. And, you know, we'll never know or we won't know until a while whether that made a difference on the sort of final outcome of the Supreme Court's case. Some people have speculated that it it did affect Chief Justice Roberts' vote, Um, but it was sort of a, a remarkable revelation. Did did the, Dr. Hoffer's work actually say it would be advantageous advantageous to uh, white people specifically? Was that in his in his working? His own words in his conclusions that said it would be quote advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. And just so you understand, from the for the census, uh, speaking as a former census enumerator, 
what your first ask your when you're asked your race they put white and then if you are say white then they ask you your origin so the Hispanic people are technically white for purposes of the census. I know that's always confused me. because okay. I, I assure you, not my neighbors, Hispanic white. Yeah, I, I assure you, my neighbors do not look at me like I'm white. Yeah, so. I, I know. <laughs> but it's confused me as a high school kid going door to door with the census as well. I had explained that a hundred times. But that's essentially saying yes, white people. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying is it would benefit white people. I, I got to say, it's not only shocking, but what, what I what I want listeners to understand is the profound implications that that would have on political power. You know, there's a lot of folks who have been talking more about how there's these structural barriers that are helping Republicans and and also, more importantly, hurting uh, minority communities. And here you'd have, for example, electoral votes going away from states like Texas, which are trending purple, and go potentially towards to, to states where there's, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of rural white voters. Very significant. And, and- and what the Hoffler study, um, I again, I don't want to tread too much, but now we know there actually is this overlap. What he explained is how it would actually be used to benefit Republicans and white people within states and in intrastate redistricting. Mm. And I can give you one example if it's helpful. Sure. Um, so if, if you switched, if you got the citizenship question on the census to enable you to switch from using total population for purposes of measuring whether pop districts are equal in population to using just citizenship po- population, it would cause the population of, you know, the relevant population of heavily um, Hispanic neighborhoods to go down, right? Like they're, they're, the population there for these purposes would drop by significantly more then it would drop in white areas. And what that would allow them to do is, for folks out there who know how gerrymandering works is, if you've ever heard of packing and cracking, where the, the strategy is to pack as many Democrats into districts as possible to you know, sort of take them out of the other districts. So Democrats win one district by 90%, but then lose all the other surrounding districts. What Dr. Hoffler explained in detail in this study is, is that because the population of these Hispanic neighborhoods would go down for redistricting purposes, that would let you pack in way more Democratic voters from the surrounding areas to equalize, to, to get the population back up, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And so you would create these supercharged packed districts, which would then allow all the surrounding districts to become that much more Republican. Um, so as a way of diluting the power of the Democratic voters. So very technical, but this is like, this is the, this, uh, you know, this is the template that he laid out. And I got to say, you know, there's a reason why this is so important to the Leonard Litos of the world and the people who are pushing the Trump administration not to give up on this, um, because it would have enormous, enormous, enormous um, long-term consequences on political power in this country. In, without a doubt, I mean, it would essentially negate a lot of um, otherwise important demographic changes that are occurring in the United States. I've got to say, um, this is the sort of evidence that you rarely get uh, as a lawyer in a case like this. People talk a lot of times about racially discriminatory policies, and it's it certainly is one thing to see potential evidence of that or to see certainly ra- racially um, disparate impacts and then infer, particularly given the history of the person or the party or the or the particular politician, that there may be that impact. But it's rare that you have somebody put that in writing in this way. And I have to say, just, you know, in, in reaction to that, th- if you're on the on the Trump administration side of this, you may be better off with the result you have now where this just sort of becomes a moot point because the sense the census question is not on there to me litigating that out uh could couldn't potentially be a very bad thing for them and, and i should say you know i mentioned before there's this case in maryland where the judge reopened the case based on this evidence on the equal protection claim that judge just yesterday ordered discovery to get going immediately so mm-hmm. you know we might you know who knows you know who knows what, what will turn up and, and how forthright the government will be about what Hoffler's role was. But, you know, like you said, they, they might come to regret allowing Discovery to move forward on these issues and finding out what actually happened in terms of how Dr. Hoffler was involved in all this. And it's very odd that this, this individual is not part of the government is so heavily involved um, in this decision. And it's even it's disturbing that he is 
you know, talking about his desire to help certain racial groups over another as a reason for doing so. Um, that is disturbing. And I will say sort of enough, as a sort of an, enough, to go from one disturbing potential outcome to another. One question that I think has been in the minds of many of our listeners is what happens if the Trump administration just says, screw the courts, we're going to put this uh, question in the census anyway? What, what, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even willing to uh, engage the possibility because it's so frightening. And I, I don't think we'll see it happen. I mean, if the, if the court orders them not to do it, I, I just don't think we'll see it happen. And I should say, you know, they've already started printing the forms uh, without the citizenship question. So, you know, I, I, I yeah, I got nothing to add beyond that. Well, I just, well I'll, 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 yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's a frightening thing, but I want everyone to understand. I try to spell out everything for our listeners. Um, okay, so Trump has talked about adding a supplemental form or supplemental question. So it's not that they technically couldn't do it. I guess what I would just say is this. Federal courts have ways in which they can enforce their powers, and yep. they issue orders and people generally comply with them. If you don't comply with them, you're held in contempt of court. Um, and then there are ways that they can enforce that. If, if you know, people have been talking recently, they've been upset at, at a lack of enforcement from contempt of Congress. But frankly, the judiciary is better uh, able to enforce its own orders um, than um, the House of Representatives is to enforce um, contempt uh, you know, when it has a, a potentially a, 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 you know, hold someone in contempt for violating its own subpoena. The, the issue is, of course, when the executive branch, uh, when, um, you know, does not, you know, the executive branch has much more authority to enforce what it wants to do. And when the executive branch refuses to endure, enforce a court order or the executive branch acts contrary to a court order, it can be very challenging for the judiciary to force the executive branch to do something that it doesn't want to do. And that's been a challenge for courts. There's a very famous quote, um, uh, you know, back um, in the in the age of Andrew Jackson, I think it was Andrew Jackson, right, right. where, you know, he talks about, you know, well, um, John Marshall made his ruling on the Supreme Court, the chief, the chief justice at that time, let him enforce it. In other words, I'm not going to enforce it. And one of the most important decisions that was made in our history was when uh, President Eisenhower sent um, literally, I think it was the 101st Airborne to Little Rock to enforce a desegregation order when local officials were unwilling to do so. And that was an important decision because he was saying that the Supreme Court's ruling would be enforced one way or the other by the federal government. If the Trump administration decided that it was going to flaunt the power of federal courts, that would be a constitutional crisis. And I hate to use that term because I feel like that term has been overused. There's been a lot of people on television because they want to uh, get you worked up or they want you to continue listening to their pro or viewing their program that they use this term constitutional crisis. And I don't think it... I think it's not as broad as some people would like the term to mean. This would be a true constitutional crisis where you have the judiciary saying that something is not the law, and that's literally the job of the judiciary to do. If something is not lawful and the administration says we don't care, that that's unbelievable. Right. It's so it would it would become so far beyond this case. That's part of the reason I don't even want to go down that road um, because it would it would represent a sort of broader crisis for the constitutional order. It, it would, but I think it's. It, I spell this stuff out because I t- a lot of a lot of our listeners don't understand how, let's say, fail, you know, failing to comply with a House Judiciary subpoena is not the same thing as this, and it is not the same thing. In other words, when there's a there's a mechanism for if you people don't respond to subpoenas on a somewhat regular basis, saying this is a litigator, and there are all sorts of mechanisms for dealing with that. This would be something that would be. Um, you know, without with very little precedent in our country's history. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so l- let me ask you, l- it, it kind of is is a way of r- of wrapping some of this up. What sh- what lessons should our listeners be taking from all of this about the court system, about these issues of um, of citizenship and redistricting and 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 all of this? There's a lot. I think there's a lot of important larger lessons to be taking from this. 
Yeah, you know, I think what I would say is the citizenship question in general, you know, when you initially tell people about it, you know, tell lay people about the what the Trump administration wants to do in ending the question, why it's a problem, it's not immediately intuitive um, why it's such a big deal. But it's exactly things like this that lead to long-term structural damage to our democracy. That's part of a long-term plan by some folks to use you know, redistricting the apparatus of government to embed sort of structural rigging of the system. Um, And that's what it would be. You know, the Hoffler memo that I mentioned sort of lays out exactly how you would use this data to sort of fight back against the democratic change, demographic changes in this country and and rig the way political power is apportioned in this country. And it's things like this that might seem kind of obscure that actually all of, a lot of the other problems in our country flow downstream from this because by rigging state legislatures, by rigging Congress, that then leads to unjust laws about, you know, voter restrictions and all sorts of other things that have all sorts of follow-up consequences. So so being really vigilant about about sort of long-term plans to rig democracy is really, really, really important. And, you know, I, I should say I've been hardened that, that especially in the last couple of months, it has become a really prominent issue when people do get why this is such a big deal. Whereas I think five, 10 years ago, um, people were not as attuned to sort of these more structural issues that were going on in the country. Absolutely. And that's why I'm glad that you were able to join us uh, this week, because it is an issue that is important, but it's very hard to understand and get your head around. So thank you for helping us make sense of this and and teaching me, including, and everybody else, a little bit about some of these issues. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. We'll see what happens in the week ahead, I guess. Indeed. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback, and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 